the summit will be promoting the status quo rather than bringing about a rethink of a system that marginalizes the people, impoverishes soils, and, and brings forth food of very suspect quality. The kind of techno-panacea that Gates and others are offering falls short in so many regards, and it falls short in large part because of its procedural its procedural way in. You can't actually just tell people what's best for them. Welcome back to the Oakland Institute podcast. With close to 800 million people suffering from hunger and an escalating climate crisis, the need for global action is urgent. While there is consensus surrounding the need to address hunger, the underlying drivers and proposed solutions have ignited debates. In September 2021, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres will convene a food system summit as part of the Decade of Action to Achieve the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. According to the UN, the summit will awaken the world to the fact that we all must work together to transform the way the world produces, consumes, and thinks about food. The UN further states that this is a summit for everyone everywhere, a people summit, a solution summit that will require everyone to take action to transform the world's food systems. However, hundreds of organizations from around the world have raised concerns about the summit. It all began with the appointment of Dr. Kalibata, president of AGRA, the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, to lead, prepare, and design the summit. Founded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the Rockefeller Foundation. AGRA has worked since its inception in 2006 to open up Africa, seen as an untapped market for corporations controlling commercial seeds, genetically modified crops, fossil-fueled-based fertilizers, and polluting pesticides. Willfully ignoring the past failures of the Green Revolution and industrial agriculture, AGRA orients farmers into global value chains for the export of cash crop commodities. Its finance, intensive, and high input agricultural model is dependent on constant subsidy, which is drawn from increasingly scarce public resources. AGRA's model of fossil fuel-based industrial agriculture is laying waste to the environment and contributing to climate change. As industrial monoculture plantations spread, family farmers, pastoralists, and indigenous communities, who are the stewards of the land and guardians of agricultural biodiversity, are marginalized and forced off their land. These are just some of the serious reasons to be concerned by AGRA leading the UN summit. In this series, we will be speaking to leading farmers and activists from around the globe to dive deeper into resistance to the upcoming Food System Summit and map out alternative courses of action to address the systemic issues driving hunger in the world today. Thank you for tuning in to the first part of a two-part series on resistance to the upcoming UN Food System Summit. My name is Andy Currier, and I'm your host today. Very excited about our guests. Let's begin. I am Nemo Basi. I'm Director of Mother Earth Foundation based in Nigeria. 
I'm Kristen Lyons and I'm a Senior Research Fellow with the Institute and also sit at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia as a Professor of Environment and Development Sociology. Thank you both for joining us today. Let's jump right in. Now, while there is broad consensus on the urgent need to address hunger in the world today, disagreements abound over the underlying causes. What do you think are the major issues facing farmers across the global south today? The major issues are many, of course, and we do realize that a majority of those who go to bed hungry every day in the global south are actually farmers. So how the question is, how does this get to happen? How come farmers go to bed hungry? The factors include land grabbing, uh, where farmers, family farmers are losing land because they're squeezed out of uh, the lots that they use to cultivate crops for food and for, and for selling. Uh, we have in the predominant system of uh, investment of governments in the global south in cash cropping, what they call cash cropping, which is actually another name for colonial agriculture, which is a kind of plantation kind of agriculture. Uh, this promotes monocropping. And all this means that farmers who would actually produce food for the people, healthy food for the people, are forced to become farmhands rather than being actually people cultivating the crops that they would normally like to cultivate. Another pressure, another, another factor that's bringing pressure on, on farmers includes the, um, the use of banned chemicals, chemicals that are banned elsewhere in the global north, especially as being sold to farmers in the global south. And this is creating health issues for the farmers and damaging soils and biodiversity. Uh, we have a, a lot of pressure on local foods that are being replaced by junk foods of doubtful nutrition. Uh, this is a big problem for the food systems also. And then we have a shortage of extension officers. Uh, these are officers who would usually go to the farms, small scale farms, go to the villages and support farmers with uh, how best to cultivate their crops, the best seasons, the best time, timing, and, and, the, and the quality of, generally the quality of uh, support system that they would have. Now, this has over the years been eroded and reduced because of structural adjustment programs of international financial institutions. Mm -hmm. And all, all this add up to create real problems for um, uh for our farmers and also and for the people. So I guess the the research and um, work that I'll draw upon is primarily in Uganda and also in Ghana. I guess that they're the two country contexts that I feel most comfortable to speak about. I might also make reference to the Solomon Islands in the Pacific where I've worked over the last decade or so as well. So I'm drawing specifically in terms of those localities. So starting with the African continent, um, you know, the majority of farmers in both these country locations are smallholder farmers and, and rely upon access to land, access to water, access to healthy ecosystems, and not just access, rights, rights, continued rights to, um, to have continued um, unfettered sovereignty over those places in order to procure food, to grow food, 
to cultivate crops and to plan over the long term, including to plan in the context of a changing climate and the particular perils that the climate crisis presents for smallholder farmers. But these farmers are are experiencing phenomenal pressures, not just from national governments, but from international structural processes, which are orienting, especially smallholder farmers, towards participation in the market, integration within um, agri-food input um, arrangements. So this dominant narrative that agriculture must modernise that has then translated through policy processes and the creation of an enabling environment for, um, for corporate actors, whether they be seed suppliers, agricultural chemical suppliers, um, and, and so on, means that it, the rights, the sovereignty of farmers to do what it is that they have done over millennia um, has been phenomenally curtailed. And so what we see really clearly in all of those country locations is farmers um, with phenomenal knowledges, including Indigenous knowledges about how to grow food, including how to grow food in a changing climate um, which, of course, is being driven by, um, you know, not just human-induced um, climate change, but, but, but changes that are driven by coloniality, conquest and an extractivist agenda. And so in the face of those pressures, smallholder farmers have solutions. They have ways of knowing, being and doing uh, to grow food and, and to feed themselves and their communities and to feed broader communities as well. But these structural processes, and I suppose to talk at, at some detail, um, take the Ghanaian case, for example, we've seen really clearly since the 1960s in particular in a so-called post-colonial context, um, agricultural policies that are increasingly co-opted by corporate and philanthropic philanthropic tropic and, and philanthro-capitalist interests and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in particular has been especially influential. They have a directly funded um, the development of agricultural policies in Ghana and not surprisingly the outcome of that is a set of policy arrangements that drive industrialized modernized agriculture that make claims that the pathway to so-called food security is through increasing production and participation in markets but of course these markets both national and international are stacked against the rights and interests of smallholder farmers so we see these policy settings that very closely match up with the interests of corporate and philanthrocapitalist interests um, and not in the interest of smallholder farmers. And this is absolutely driving food insecurity um, in the country locations that I've worked. And we can see it very clearly in Ghana and in the Brongahapo region, which is widely referred to as the, the food basket of Ghana. Um, in terms of not just local food provisioning within communities, but feeding the Ghanaian and the rapidly growing urban population of Ghana. But the disruptions that are being levelled through those landscapes because of a set of modernising agricultural policies are disavowing the rights and interests of smallholder farmers to actually make autonomous choices about what they want to do on their land. And of course, they are also being pushed off land and having access to land is absolutely vital to um, shoring up uh, food sovereignty. And if we take to contrast, if we take the case of the small, um, of the Pacific nation, the Solomon Islands in a low lying, you know, a cluster of nearly a thousand islands, incredibly low lying um, to the northeast of Australia, where I sit, 
Um, and so the Solomon Islands is one of a number of nations on the front lines of climate change impacts, rising sea levels, salination, um, and the, the disappearance of lands that were vital for, for food provisioning. So in, in, in this context, we can see really profoundly the challenges of climate change in terms of eroding the capacity of communities themselves to feed themselves. But of course, we can see really clearly that also communities are on the front foot in terms of leading both mitigation and adaptation that are centering Indigenous and local knowledges to manage in the face of climate change. But I think, you know, to your question about what are the causes or the challenges facing smallholder farmers in in, in small island states such as the Solomon Islands, absolutely climate change um, in terms of its biophysical manifestations is really clearly a challenge. But, but climate change is a result of, of a set of socio-political forces tied to, as I said earlier, an extractivist um, colonising agenda. And, and until we grapple with those power relations and seek to... Um, disavow those sets of power relations we find communities in the Solomon Islands and elsewhere at the at the, you know incredibly vulnerable in in the face of a global politics which is still reticent to take the urgent action that's required to decarbonize so as to curb the worst effects of a changing climate. Well, thank you both for that comprehensive look at forces driving hunger, uh, especially for farmers in the global south today. And one thing you both noted was was technology, um, often the misuse of technology. And so while many corporations and some large foundations, such as Gates, emphasize the role technology must play in modernizing agriculture, what are your thoughts on relying on technological advances as the solution? Um, well, you know, technofixes are a big threat to having sustain, having agriculture that is really suitable for the environment or for the people. But the problem is that um, people are people make a fetish of technologies, and they believe that anything that is technical, anything that is made in the laboratory, is actually uh, better than other other forms of production. This is the myth that has been sustained over the years by big industry, so as to colonize our food systems. Now, there's a place for appropriate technology developed for local needs by local research institutions. Uh, but the kind of technofixes that are being promoted by the likes of the Gates Foundation, there's a place for appropriate technology in agriculture. But this has to be agriculture developed for the needs of local farmers to suit the context and to, to enhance productivity, but not the kind of technologies being pro proposed um, promoted by big agri-industry, uh, including things like genetic engineering. Genetic engineering has become a really big problem uh, in places, in, in Africa, for example, in Nigeria specifically, uh, because we have a system, we have uh, a government that is permitting almost every application, approving almost any application that comes to it. And the industry is doing all they can to to open the door to, to make the country or the continent a dumping ground for junk technologies. Uh, of course, sometimes when people think about farming, they believe that uh, I hear people say, well, you can't, the farmers can't stay with the hoe. They have to go uh, industrial. But you know, this, this is a wrong notion. 
a notion that doesn't recognize the fact that monocropping, which is what industrial agriculture promotes, is not what people need. It doesn't fit into the system of food production uh, in, in, in an, a continent, for example, where farming is a way of life of the people. People don't consider it basically a business. But when you look at agriculture as nothing but business, then you are completely changing everything. We have a situation where uh, an agency like Bill Gates, uh, Rocky Foundation, Foundation Agra, uh, professes to work in the interest of small-scale farmers. But meanwhile, they are busy promoting uh, biotechnology, uh, modern agri agricultural biotechnology, even extreme biotechnology, promoting seed laws that criminalizes seed savings and forces farmers to, to be dependent on seed companies. You know, we, we find all these uh, kind of, kinds of technologies uh, mere tools for colonization of our seeds and food systems and things that don't help at all. Uh, well, I mean, I like to take a kind of agnostic approach to technology. Technology in and of itself um, is, is neither necessarily good or bad. It's the, it's the agendas and the politics that sit behind it. And so I think that's where our attention needs to turn and where the scrutiny needs to take place. And so we can see in particular, if we turn back to Ghana's um, so-called green revolution, um, turbocharged by the Alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa, it's 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 very clear that there is an alliance of interest that we have philanthro capital, but we also have them aligning up alongside large agricultural chemical companies, large seed providers, and so on. So. It's, it's quite clear that there is an economic imperative to this agenda. And so the problem for me lies through a kind of political economic analysis, that when the agenda is one of profit motive um, and, and profit motive that largely flows offshore, far away um, from those nation states where these technological interventions are heavily promoted, um, then it's, it's, it's so far disconnected from the local needs and aspirations that people have. And so um, the idea that we can rely upon technology um, when we know that particularly in the last couple of decades with this, this neoliberal turn, which has seen increasing public and private partnerships and where um, private sector actors and in particular global corporations have such a heavy influence in terms of shaping public conversations, in shaping policy processes, and in the case of Ghana and many other countries as well, literally funding those policy processes. Uh, you know, the democratic process in which decision-making takes place, the, the capacity for deliberative dialogues where all voices can be not only equally heard but actually equally weighted in terms of decision-making is, is absolutely distorted. And so we have particular sets of power um, relations who, who, who stack interests, you know, in decision-making in their favour. And, 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 and that's very much what we see in terms of technological drivers. So we can see that really clearly in terms of not genetically engineered seeds, of course, and other genetically engineered interventions across food and farming, but agricultural seeds, other agricultural farming innovations, the um, huge turn towards so-called digital agriculture and the suite of um, new forms of technological surveillance and other interventions across agricultural landscapes, but also at the science of the super small nanotechnologies. In all of these domains, it's been the 
phenomenal injection of funds through private sector actors that is driving these technological interventions and driving the way in which it's talked about and, and attempts to regulate, or in many instances, attempts to um, limit any regulation at all. I think that's very important what you mentioned about the scrutiny on the agenda and politics behind certain technologies. And when that agenda is, is being set by profit motives and not the well-being of farmers, you, you see the current situation that we have today, unfortunately. And so now let's turn um, to the stakes of the upcoming UN Food Systems Summit. Um, now the UN claims this will be a summit for everyone, everywhere, a people summit. However, so far the, the summit has been met with widespread backlash and boycotts from farmers, civil society, and peasant farmers. Uh, so why is this the case, um, in your opinion? Um, I think it's really wise to not turn up to processes where you um, may simply be legit legitimizing um, a set of decisions that have almost already been made and a set of interests that have already stacked behind particular agendas, particular ways in which issues will be talked about. And so the mass observation, sorry, the mass um, opposition to this event, I think, demonstrates really clearly the acute concerns that those that have most at stake in these issues, um, their interests are not intended to be heard in ways that are meaningful and that will meaningly, meaningfully affect the outcomes of this. And so, you know, we can see this, for example, in the way in which um, the, the, um, the appointment of the president of AGRA as the special envoy um, for the summit was made. And this was made without public transparent um, dialogue and discussion. This was an appointment that appeared to fall from the sky. And, and this speaks to, I think, a couple of things. It speaks to um, the lack of transparency and the, the opaque way in which processes related to the summit play out, which, of course, for people who are being asked, people and organisations that are being asked to invest huge amounts of time in a process, they need to know that it's actually going to amount to something, that it won't actually distract them from doing other things that might deliver more effective change. And so that is but one example. And of course, there are many examples of the way in which we have to have serious questions about the, the democratic procedural nature of, of this summit and how it will uh, how it will happen but also this clear convergence of interest between the summit and the alliance for the green revolution in africa is rendered bare here and so we can see again very clearly that there are already vested interests at work and in really obvious ways um, and so serious questions have to be asked about how will those sets of interests continue to shape what's able to be talked about, um, who's invited to the table. Um, and so I think it's it's a very clear um, opposite of endorsement, um, disendorsement of, of, the, of both the summit and its processes um, that, that so many civil society, farmer-based organisations, food sovereignty, Indigenous rights groups are saying, this is not the platform for us. Um, and in fact, I think, you know, we see this time and again in, in global governance discourses in, in various examples around the world where communities walk away from processes and in so doing expose furthermore the limits of those processes. The civil society, peasant farmers and many other groups are boycotting uh, or opposed to the United, United Nations 
uh, a food system summit uh, because um, when it was first announced, many of us thought that this would be a great opportunity uh, to bring about a food systems transformation agenda. But what has turned out is that uh, the, the, the food system is corporate led, uh, either directly led by corporate corporates or led by philanthropic capitalists. Uh, and so they're driving, uh, producing a very huge question mark on the usefulness of whatever may be the outcome of the process. Uh, civil societies and peasant farmers do not very clearly see, they see the link, the link between fossil fuel driven industrial agriculture, deforestation and climate change. Uh, but we do know that industrial farmers are in denial of this link. In fact, when, when the blame is put on agriculture for global warming, you hardly find in the same breath a connection to the fact that that kind of agriculture that is harmful to the climate is actually fossil fuel driven agriculture and not all kinds of agriculture. Peasant farmers who are engaged in other forms such as agroecology are actually cooling the planet. Uh, we is also believed that the United Nations Food System Summit has very constricted space, little space for indigenous knowledge. And so uh, the knowledge that would have enriched the transformation agenda, a transformation agenda is not given the pride of place. Uh, and so it's believed that the system, the summit will be promoting the status quo rather than bringing about a rethink of a system that marginalizes the people, impoverishes soils, and, and brings forth food of very suspect quality. Uh, we, we, when I say we, I mean those who are opposed to uh, the, the, the way this uh, summit is being planned and hosted, uh, believe that the, the space is not what is really needed. It's, it's not the kind of space where you see people sit down to, to look at what actually, to listen to the farmers, those who are actually breaking their back, producing food, uh, and to find what they need. Uh, but rather, it's, a top, it's going to be a top-down process where industrial, industrial farming ideas, the, the, uh, the needs of big seed companies would be used as a framework to drive whatever is going to come out at the end. And if uh, it's suspected, that the outcome may be such that would not, uh, the, any outcome that does not uh, fit into the agenda of agribees may not eventually get um, implemented. We've seen that before. So it's not the first time this will happen. So, so given these concerns and, and how it, it, it appears that the summit as it's designed is not going to promote solutions that people and farmers actually need, how, how can we ensure that true solutions gain necessary support? This is a great job, a great task for everyone who is really desirous that we should have healthy, safe, and accessible food in the world today. Uh, we do know that people are not hungry for because there's no food uh, in the market shelves. People are not hungry because farmers are not productive. People are not hungry because people are hungry today uh, because of structural deficiencies in the entire political system, uh, which controls, the, which affects the agricultural system. 
Uh, and so we, there, there's need for, for peasant farmers to come together for the food movement to come together in Africa. We have the African Food Sovereignty Alliance, uh, which is an alliance that with, of, of, mem of member groups with over 250 million uh, members, the peasant farmers across the continent. Uh, with this kind of um, alliances and movements, really talking about food sovereignty, talk about food that is appropriate to the cultures of the people, food is appropriate to uh, the, the food, the needs of the people, the food that is, uh, that, that people really build their life around, if I may use that, that phrase, uh, is, is what is needed. We need to liberate the food system, decolonize the food. We, we need to uh, promote agriculture that works in line, in line with the ecosystem, with the ecology, ecological systems. It's, it's a great question. So for me, I think we really have to focus on the urgent challenge that is before us. It is how, you know, in relation to food systems, how do we ensure that we are able to democratically feed ourselves into the future in the context of the climate crisis, which is bearing down upon our lives now and will continue so over the years to come. How do we design for resilient food systems, socially just, ecologically just food systems? How do we grapple with and seek to be, um, you know, upholding our international Indigenous rights obligations in so doing? And so to me, we have to center those priorities, not the priorities of, of corporations um, and this convergence of public private sector actors that, that think that they can techno fix our way out of the, the kind of profound challenges that we face. But if we actually flip the focus to the fundamental challenges that we face, then how can democratic governance processes guide us in this direction? And so that's where we can see community organizations, in indigenous farmer-based movements and so on, directing their energies, because these are where the solutions not only lie, but are, are already present. We already see the proliferation of pathways for viable food systems in existence. What we need is structures that support those to flourish, not structures that seek to um, disavow the rights and interests of those communities and groups that are on front the front lines of imagining that future that we so desperately need. Thank you both for that insightful discussion. For listeners who want to learn more, a link to the Oakland Institute webpage covering the UN Food System Summit has been included in the episode description where you can find articles and more information. Stay tuned for the next part in this series, and as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.